0: One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls His disciples to follow Him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. Uh, Psalms is found in the middle of your Bibles, literally if you just kind of let them fall open right in the middle, you're going to find the Psalms, Uh, it's in the Old Testament if you are in uh, the Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, hang a left, Uh, but we're in Psalm 32 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship, you don't own a Bible, as always there's about three on the back table, grab one, we can replenish them, Uh, and that that is for you, so grab one. Y'all came back after last week, that's good. I wasn't really sure if that would happen, but this is good. Uh, look, like I said this morning or earlier, the Christian life is often described in the New Testament as, as a walk, as walking after Jesus, as following Jesus. And so we've been taking this summer to look at the specific ways that that walk is characterized. What are the kinds of things that we do as we walk with Jesus? We're, uh, next week's actually our last week in this series, uh, and we'll look at walking in mercy this week. This week, we come to the notion of confession. And the Christian concept of confession is misunderstood often by those both outside the church and within the church. Uh, what we're going to see this morning in Psalm 32 is that confession is telling the truth about who we are to the only one that can do something about it. So if you have your place in Psalm 32, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. You'll be reading uh, Psalm 32 verses one to five. This is God's word. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is God's Word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come this morning from different paths, from different stories, we come into this place asking that you would draw us into your story, that you would work in us that grace that we have sung of already. That you would impress upon us your holiness, a holiness that is not only righteous and pure, but loving and gracious. And so, Lord, would you, would you draw us to yourself this morning. Pray, we, we pray that you would preach your gospel to us. And so let Christ and his cross come to the fore, and the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So you all know the dream, right? I mean, you're you're um, there's some big event going on. You're in the middle of it. All these important people are in the audience, or or, or people in which you, folks that you are uh, that you find important to you, they're standing around you. And all of a sudden, you realize that you are naked, buck naked, standing on the middle of a stage. Now, if you remain asleep, because often, if you're anything like me, sudden panic wakes you up. But if you remain asleep, that panic sets in rather quickly. You realize that you are completely exposed in front of everyone. There's nothing you can do about it, because there's nothing, for some reason, for some, wherever you are, and this is always the case, no matter, there is just nothing that you can possibly cover yourself with. You are completely exposed in front of everyone. Now, that's a common dream, but the reality is that this kind of dream is far too common to actually be about being naked in public. Like that, somehow that doesn't seem to be a regular fear of ours. Like, oh no, I'm going to forget my pants in the morning. Like we don't do that. So what is this about? Uh, More likely, it's connected to something more foundational in all of us: the fear of being completely known, the fear of just suddenly being revealed. Because we are masters of hiding, of covering up, of putting on a front. Some of us are so skilled at it, so fluent in that language that we don't even realize we do it anymore. It just, it's just what we do. It's just what happens. And this is even, if not especially true of those of us in the church. But our text this morning pushes on us. And it pushes on that particular thing because... It says that to be reconciled with the God we we were made for, it will require us to tell the truth about ourselves and to walk in confession. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we look at these five verses, we're going to look in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at what we confess, why we confess, and then how to confess. Okay? What we confess, why we confess, and then how to confess. Let's start this morning with what we confess. And in this, we need to define some terms. Look down at verse 1, because it starts off with this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, that word blessed for most of us and for most of our culture is just another way of saying lucky, right, or fortunate. For many of us, it's like if you're, if you're non-Christian, you're outside of the church, you say, man, I was really lucky today. If you're inside the church, for some reason, you baptize that and say, I was really blessed today. But all, all in all, for most of us, it means the exact same thing. It, it, it kind of communicates to us this idea of having good things and being above all happy, right? And that's part of what it means, but it actually goes deeper than that. Because in, in, in the language in which the Old Testament was written, that word actually communicates something deeper. It communicates a kind of whole life flourishing. That the, It means the life we were made for. Now, as I say that, as I say the life we were made for, that's a little controversial, right? Because it assumes at least two things. One, it assumes that we were made, and we were made also by someone who, who gave us intentionality. Right? There was an intention behind our making, our creation, that is not our own. In other words, you didn't have anything to say about that. It's just someone else created us and created us for a purpose. And that's part of the story that the Bible tells, that, that we were created for a, a, a personal, by a personal God. We were created by a personal God for relationship with him. But it's not just any relationship. It's a it, in the scriptures, it's called a covenantal one. It's a covenant, and that's that's kind of again, that's that's Bible language, uh, not something we use often today. But for our purposes, it, it means a little more than this. But a helpful way of summarizing that is that a covenant is a, a relationship bound by promises, explicit promises. Okay, we make promises to one another. They're unilateral, and the and the relationship is held together with them. So we were made to be in a dep- we, we were made to be dependent on God for everything. To image him and to enact his wise and loving rule over all of creation. That's what we were created for. And so, if that is how we were made, if that is what we were made for, then it stands to reason that according to the Bible, that is how we will flourish. That is how we will flourish. When our psalm talks about someone being blessed, we have to understand that this is the kind of relationship with God that's in view. Now, there's more to flourishing than that, but that is the foundation of it. It is the the root from which the rest of it springs, and if that is missing, the rest is missing as well. We were made for a dependent, loving relationship with God, but also unbroken relationship with others, with ourselves and creation. But that isn't the case now, right? I mean, I shouldn't have to tell you that that isn't the case. So what happened? Well, that question brings us to the comprehensive complaint. Look at those first two verses if you can. There are three words that he uses here. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And those are all very religious sounding words, right? Transgression, sin, iniquity. Uh, And so because the fact that they are religious sounding words, that means that we all have really preconceived notions over what those things must mean we inject our own kind of understanding into them. And so what we need to do is to get at uh, what he's saying here, is to get at what the Bible says about them. And all three of those have certain nuances. Okay? For instance, the word transgression, when it's most often used, has to do with uh, rebellion, like rebelling against the king, rebelling against a way that, uh, uh, an authority that we are under. That, whereas the, the notion of sin, that specific word sin, carries the notion of failure. Failure to, to meet a standard, failure to meet a mark. Uh, it's even, it can be used as an archery term. You didn't hit the bullseye. Uh, it's a failure. It's a failure to do something. But iniquity is a kind of a, a catch-all. It's kind of a catch-all for any offense against God. And the point of this is that all three deal with this notion of covenant. They are about breaking the covenant. They are about breaking our promises to God. Here's what I mean. Just as much as the Bible says that we were made for this dependent relationship with God, it's also very clear that we broke that relationship. That's what it's getting at when it uses these words in the context of a promise-bound relationship. Because, you see, we hear the words sin, and we think rule-breaking. Specifically, like, arbitrary, distant, moral code rule-breaking, right? Like, that, that code is such that we're like, I don't know who created that, it's outdated, and... Why is it any better than any other? That's what we think when we think of sin. uh, We've violated somebody's rules. But the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. We didn't break rules. We broke a relationship. Because you see, we we became convinced of a lie. God didn't love us. He certainly wasn't out for our good. He couldn't be trusted. He's using us for his own ends. And so we came to believe not only that we could be independent of, of him... We were made for dependence on him. We came to believe we could be independent of him, but because he's, he doesn't love us, we can't trust him, he's using us, we had to be independent from him. Not only that we can, but that we must. And so we turned from him. We betrayed him. And that is what is meant by these words. Sure, they have nuance to them, but consistently in the Old Testament, the, when these three words are used together, and they're used together a lot, they're used to talk about a comprehensive breaking of our relationship with God, the comprehensiveness of it, of betraying God. See friends, when we talk about sin, we talk about that, that, that Christian churchy word, sin isn't breaking rules so much as breaking a heart. It's not to say there aren't rules, right? Like you all know that. Like I'd be foolish I'm a pastor up here telling you the Bible doesn't have any rules, and of course it does. But those rules are based on a person. Right they are reflecting of his character. When we rage against those rules, we have to understand we're raging against him. When we, when we look at the rule, you know, the, the law and it says, you know, don't steal, and we go, y- you don't understand my circumstance. I should be able to take what I need to, to survive and to get, to get mine. These people have so much, I can just go get mine. What we're not saying is, I hate your rule. We're saying, God, I hate the fact that you are a giver. I don't like that. I want to be a taker. I think being a givers silly stupid ridiculous. We think we're raging against a rule but we're r- raging against him. We've turned from God. Broken relationship with him and that had devastating effects on us as a people. First, first and foremost, because we betrayed a person and not a force, right? God's not a force. He's not some kind of power that kind of goes through the world but has no personhood. He's, he's not a forcing. He's not a code. Because of those things, we, there was relational guilt. And you know this, when you break relationship with a person, there comes relational guilt. But in addition to that is this notion of brokenness. Because you see, the, the Bible says not only that, that we began to believe that lie, but now because we believed it in the beginning, that now it's the assumption of our lives. You and I do not have to be taught that God isn't trustworthy, that uh, the world is rigged to harm, and then since He's in control of it, guess what that means? Uh, we don't have to be convinced that, that He's not really out for our good, that we need to find the, our way our, ourselves. It's our assumption, and it creeps into every aspect of our being. Think of it like the lenses that you wear. If you, if you wear, uh, great example, if you wear contact lenses, right? You don't even know they're there unless something's wrong. Unless something kind of gets on there, scratches them, or they get dry. Something happens. You don't even know that they are present. But they they are the things through which you see everything. They change everything. And this is the same with sin. By nature, we are now sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. We are sinners, and therefore we sin. Now, listen close, because this is the important part. This is true of all of us. When we hear that, we, when we hear that language, we, we think, uh, when we hear sin, we think of certain things, right? Think of like sex and drugs and, and, and oppression and murder and greed, et cetera. But, but the Bible defines it a little different. It doesn't just talk about those things. It defines it as, as our actions or motivations that are, that are done in independence from God, So some of us in this room are very moral, right? We're really moral. You look good. You're clean cut. Everything's great. You look really good on the outside. But you use your morality to keep God distant from you. You use your morality to say, I don't really need you, God. I'm good enough on my own. You use your morality to say, I can get a name for myself in my community. I don't really need you. You Use your morality to say, I don't have to depend on you for anything because I am doing just fine. Look how good I am. Thank you, Lord, that you did not make me like these other people. Others of us, we we do chase after immorality. That's how we stay independent from God. like, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to go do my own thing, and I'm going to go do it, and I don't really care what you think about it. But either way, listen to me, either way, the Bible calls it sin. Either way. Now, one last thing before we move on. Notice what the psalm doesn't say. The psalmist doesn't say, blessed is the perfect person. Or, blessed is the really good person, really sincere person, or the really religious person. It doesn't say that. Why? Why does it say blessed is the forgiven person, the, for, the one whose sin is forgiven? Because amongst us there are no perfect people. And God is not looking for good, sincere, or religious. He's looking for dependent. And when we turn from our stuff, when you go before someone that you have offended and you say, I have nothing to offer you that is going to make me right with you, I have to just rely on you and your grace and your forgiveness, which is what we do when we ask someone for their forgiveness, we are depending on them. God is looking for someone who will admit that things aren't right. That's what he means by saying in whose spirit is no deceit and then depend on him to make it right. That is what forgiveness is. And that brings us to why we are to confess in the first place. Look at verse 3. It says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, all my, through my groaning all day long. Okay? So the situation that he's envisioning here is kind of that, that idea of um, not really admitting to anything. Having this sense in the back of your head that you did something wrong but not really caring. Like, you don't understand my circumstances. Yeah, I I know what you I know I don't let me don't I don't need to I don't need your rules. Like I I hear you but no, no. You don't understand what this person did to me or what this person did to me. I don't have to listen to you. I am fine on my own. It is a picture of stubbornness and we have all experienced this, right? And so when he when he says this, when he says that his bones wasted away uh through all of his groaning. That's a little dramatic, isn't it? I mean, It sounds like what he's saying is that he was dying. My bones wasting away. I mean, he's obviously not being literal, right? Because it's not like I got osteoporosis because I wouldn't confess my sin. Like, that's not what he's talking about. It's metaphorical. And it sounds like what he's talking about is dying. And in fact, that's exactly what he's talking about. It's exactly what he's talking about. Because you see that guilt that we incur as sinners is a death. Death. And this makes sense. Listen, don't, don't check out on me when I say that. This makes sense. If we say that God created us, the life that we were made for was unbroken relationship with Him. He's like, this is how you will live. And we decided, I don't want to do that. It's not life then. It would be a death. That, that's, that's all that this is saying. When the Bible talks about death, it certainly means the physical act of dying, but it also means something else. It means bearing the weight of our guilt. Bearing the weight of our betrayal of God. It's God saying, You want independence from me? Then go for it. Go for it. Until eventually it leads us to an eternal separation from Him that the Bible calls hell. It means bearing the weight of our guilt. Now, Now, some of us, for some of us, that's really offensive. I mean, it's not bad enough that I just said that all of us are sinners. Uh, but, but now, uh, I've just said that there's a consequence to that sin, that we're held accountable for it, that we can't be good enough or religious enough or sincere enough to get out of it. But stay with me. We're not done yet. See, we all know that when you betray someone, there's guilt. It's like, you know, if your spouse cheats on you, there's guilt. It happens. When your spouse betrays you, that, that's not like a little thing, right? There's going to be consequences to that. Sometimes significant ones. And if God is a person and we betrayed him on the same level, which is what the Bible compares it to, okay, then we should expect the same. And our attempts at goodness, at trying to make it up, is a lot like coming to your spouse with flowers or washing their car when you cheated on them. Like I don't know why you're so mad. I got three dozen roses. You know how much that costs me? Like, like what do you want from me? You're like, that ain't going to work. It's not going to work. You can't make up for it. Guilt is a real thing, and someone has to bear it. And that is what he is talking about here. There is a real sense of guilt and a real burden of that betrayal. But here's, here's the thing. Nobody in this room thinks that what we do is really that bad, do we? We don't think it's that bad. And that is generally because we think that pleasing God or being in the right is a comparative affair. Right? We look around like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know that i mess up, but I ain't as jacked up as that dude. You know, like, I, I'm not as bad as that guy. I know I'm messed up. I have my problems. But have you seen her? Let me, as a matter of fact, let me show you what she does. Right? We think it's a comparative affair. That, and that is a lot like saying, well, I mean, yes, yeah, sweetie, I cheated on you, but not as much as your last boyfriend. How far is that going to get you? Not real far. Listen to me close. We are all messed up. All of us. You may look clean or not as clean, but we are all messed up. We have all betrayed God and we are all in need of forgiveness. And that brings us to verse four. This guy says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now stop there. Because you and I believe the lie, because that's our assumption. That God is out to get us, that he doesn't want good for us. When we hear, your hand was heavy upon me, we think this means God was trying to get him because he messed up, right? God is out to get him, to hurt him. But look at the rest of the passage. God's hand being heavy upon him did not result in his destruction. God's hand heavy upon him was not to wound him. It was to bring him back. It ended not with his destruction, but with his forgiveness. And this speaks to an incredibly important part of the biblical story. God, the one who is betrayed, seeks after those who have betrayed him so that he might reconcile them to himself. Right there in the beginning, right in the first three chapters of the Bible, when we turn from God, God says in Genesis 3.15 that he is going to make it right. I will do this, he says. I will make it right. And then later he he chooses this dude named Abraham who didn't believe in him. Wasn't looking for him. Was doing just fine. He was a rich dude in, in this, in this uh, pagan city. He was doing just fine. But he said, Abraham, you're coming with me. We're going to a new country. I'll show you on the way. And it's through you and your family that I'm going to make this right. The problem was is that Abraham's family was just as jacked up as the rest of us. It's kind of like you, you, you can't save someone from drowning if you're drowning too. You need someone from outside to come in and to save you. Because Abraham's family was just as broken as anyone was. They failed time and time again, but God wasn't done. And you see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came because the God of the Bible is nothing like the God that we imagine. He's nothing like the God we imagine. We imagine a vindictive God who is looking, who is seeking to destroy those who cross Him, who is just seeking to, to ruin them, who is looking for a reason to smite us, and that is why we hide our failures. We hide them because we're afraid that God is really like what we think he is. We hide them because we think, if anyone sees this, I'm going to get ruined. But the God of the Bible is a God who pursues those who have betrayed him, not to destroy them, but to restore them to himself. God's hand was heavy upon the writer because God was trying to get him to turn around trying to get him to admit what he had done and come back to the Lord. God pursues those who sin against him. He pursues them. He chases them. We want nothing to do with him, but he pursues us. And if he didn't, we would be lost. So that's the what's and the why's. That brings us to how we confess. First looking at the result. Look look down at verse 5. He says this, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, that's the Lord, forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is so counterintuitive, so I, I need you to check back in if you checked out. If you're new to Christianity, or, or the church that you've always been a part of has always been about just kind of doing good and being about being moral, this sounds crazy. He confessed, and God forgave. It can't be that easy. Some of us are like, it's not just it can't be that easy. Some of us are thinking, but he's going to get his, right? I mean... He is gonna pay for what he did. He, there is something that he can't just get away with this stuff. Now, those of us who are generally thinking that are thinking that because we think we've been really good, we think that our goodness keeps us, and and we're like, he went out and did bad stuff, so he should pay for that bad stuff. I've been good. I want my blessing, right? Well, the reality is, it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that easy for God. And see, the clue is in that word, Lord. You see that word? It's all in capital letters in in your translations, most of them. So, the word Lord, all in capital letters. That, that is the way our translators translate God's covenant name, okay? A particular way of, just of talking to Him, a particular way of calling Him, um, the name that He gives to those who are looking to Him to deal with their sin. Back in the beginning, God promised, I will take care of things. He made that promise to us. And when we enter into a relationship with Him, trusting Him, trusting He's going to answer His promise to make things right, we call Him. Lord, it's a name of trust, that you are trusting that God would deal with your guilt and your brokenness. Now, remember what I said a few minutes ago, that the reason why Jesus came is because God wasn't done yet. Jesus came to do what we never could. He came to restore us to God. He lived a life of of perfection, of sinlessness and dependence that we could not But he also died in the place of sinners. That's what the cross is all about. On the cross, Jesus uh, bore the wrath of God for our betrayal. Now, some of us are thinking, that is not fair. That, That is not fair. Why would God punish someone, an innocent person, for something that he didn't do? Doesn't that just prove that God isn't just? So that's a great question. But it gets to that second word, forgave. Think with me for a second. Forgiveness does not mean With a word, you make something go away. Right? That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means bearing the consequence of that offense yourself. Here's what I mean. So you steal something from me. If you steal something from me and I forgive you, it doesn't make that thing magically appear back in my garage or my wallet. It means I'm out that If I want that, I have to go pay for it again. You you steal something from me, if I want it, and I've forgiven you, if I want it, I've got to go pay for it again. So then, technically, I'm paying twice for that. right? I'm paying double. Justice would mean getting it back, getting it replaced. It would mean you paying for what you took. Forgiveness means me paying for what you took. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. Listen, Christians don't believe that Jesus was just some dude running around in robes and Birkenstocks. Like, he wasn't just like Guru Jesus sitting up on the, on, the, on, on the ground with his legs crossed. That Jesus is literally God incarnate. God in the flesh. In Jesus, God came to literally bear the weight of our betrayal. Literally, th- that word forgave or uh, there in verse 5 and also verse 1. It literally means to carry. To carry. To lift something and carry it. God carries our guilt on his own back. When we turn to Jesus and trust in Him, He carries our guilt. He covers our sin with His own perfect righteousness, and our sin is counted to Him and not to us. Friends, that is what it means to be a Christian, to tell the truth about who we are and to return to the only one who can do something about it, Jesus. It is not about returning to rules. It is not about getting the rules right. It's about returning to a person and letting Him make the relationship right. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. But how do we get there? Let's conclude with the process. Look at verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions. All right, stop there. By nature, we do not tell the truth about ourselves. That is not something that is normal in our vocabulary. We are convinced that we can't. That we, that we need to make ourselves look good. That we have to be Right? But you and I know the truth, don't we? We know. We know what's going on up here and in here. We know what we do when the lights aren't on, when, when no one's watching. That is why we have those naked in public dreams, because we know we are terrified that we will be found out. Listen, you can't hide from God. More importantly, you don't have to. You don't have to. He knows you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've thought. He knows what you've said. And he has pursued reconciliation with you. Look, when we betray someone, the last thing we want to do is face them, right? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of what will happen. God calls us to face him with the assurance that as we do so through Jesus... He has loved us and provided for us. But we have to return to him. Thankfully, our writer tells us what that means. First, it means acknowledging. See that? He says, I acknowledged my, my guilt. I acknowledged my transgression. I acknowledged my sin to you, he says. That means actually saying it. And when I say saying it, I mean not in generic terms, right? Listen, you and I are really comfortable with being generic sinners. We love being generic sinners. As a matter of fact, it's like, we're fine with that. It sounds an awful lot like, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. It sounds an awful lot like, I mean, nobody's perfect. Right? We love being generic sinners, but acknowledging means being specific. It isn't just, I'm a sinner, but here's how I've sinned. Here's how I've betrayed you, God. Being specific. Second is not covering up. This means not hiding it or trying to pretty it up. And normally, it, when we try and pretty up what we've done wrong, it means mitigating it. I did, yeah, 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 I did X. We may have been specific. Yeah, yeah, I did that. But you don't understand my life. Yeah, I did that. But you don't understand how my parents treated me. Yeah, I did that. But you have to understand. You have to understand. You have to understand. We go from explaining to excusing. Confession means leaving behind your excuses. Because at the end of the day, you may be able to explain why you betrayed a person, but you can never excuse it. Lastly, he says confess. Literally, that word means to agree. It doesn't just mean being specific. This is what I've done. It it doesn't just mean leaving aside our our shining up our little brown pile there to make it look nice. It, It means... Agreeing, and what what that means is agreeing not only that it was wrong, but that it actually deserved to be judged. That it deserves to be judged. Now, listen. If you aren't a Christian here this morning, I realize this is bizarre, right? But but you know, and I know that you're broken, and I know that because I am too, and I am not generically broken. I have very specific ways in which I am broken. I really and truly fail. And I, I, this is not pious talk. I, I actually believe it is probably more than you do. I think that's part of God's humor in putting me here. Right? Christians don't confess their sins because we like feeling guilty. But because we know it does no good to pretend we can hide them. And because we trust that Jesus has already paid for those sins. Past, present, and future. We don't have to hide anymore. Listen to me. The good news for you this morning is it is way worse than you think it is. It is way worse. I know you're like, I I understand the way I failed. Really? You thought that two years ago. And then the last two years happened. And you're like, oh man. It's way worse than you think it is. And God sees it all. But you are more loved than you possibly ever dreamed by God. If you come to Jesus, you don't have to carry that guilt. You don't have to carry that shame or that fear anymore. And if you are a Christian here this morning, let me ask you a question. If you believe this, why do you still hide? Why do you still hide? Why do you pretend that sin is something you used to do? Especially when we get in this group, right? Oh, yeah, I, I used to struggle with that. God delivered me. Never thought about it since. Oh, that. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I used to deal with that. But, but uh, you know, praise God, through a lot of hard work, I'm not there anymore. And if you don't want to deal with that either, you need to listen to me. Like, that's, that's what we do. We pretend it's something in the past. We profess with our words that we are only right with God because of Jesus, but then we never admit to any wrong in front of anyone. We are fine being generic sinners, but when is the last time you confessed an actual contemporary sin with a person? Like someone sitting across from you and you're like, I blew it, here's how. Do you realize that this psalm, right here that we read, is for public worship. For public worship. This. God's people get together and they say, I blew it. Here's how I blew it. I I acknowledged it. God forgave me. Praise Praise God. Yes. Yes, we need to confess to God, but we also need to confess to others. That reading we had from James 5.16, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. When you don't, when you pretend that you don't have any sins, at least any specific ones and listen most of us when we just live in the realm of generic being a generic sinner what we really mean is we don't really have any the rest is just cultural but when we when we pretend that we don't have sins when we get defensive every time someone confronts us on a way that we have sinned against them what you what we are saying is i was a sinner but now i'm good and you should be good like me too. And when we look at those who are outside of the church, what we tell them is not, I have a great Savior. You say, I have a great morality, so come join me in it. Come be good like me. Aren't I so good? Isn't God so lucky to have me? Sometimes I think Christians should introduce themselves like people do at a 12-step program. You know, Hi, I'm Rick. I'm an arrogant blowhard. You know, or... or Hi, I'm I'm Shelly. I use my words to wound others because I'm scared of them. Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Dave. I'm scared of life, so I use people and substances to deal with it. Friends, we don't have to hide anymore. Because the one whose opinion is ultimate is satisfied with you in Jesus. I can boldly be a sinner before you. And what I mean by that is not go boldly sin. What I mean is, I can actually tell you boldly what is true of me, because it makes my Savior look greater. I can tell the truth about myself, because God has declared that because of Jesus. I am no longer called sinner. I am called Son. Would you pray with me? Father, everyone in this room, and especially the one who's speaking to you right now, we are all terrified of being exposed now we may be at different parts than that some of us have grown more comfortable with with certain levels of exposure but there's always that one thing there's always that one thing that we are just scared of people seeing and knowing but you see it and you know it so Lord I pray that this morning you would impact it upon our hearts that you have seen us you have known us And you have loved us in the Lord Jesus. For my friends here who have never trusted in that love, I pray that you would work in them even right now so that they might lay their faith on you, Jesus. Confess to you that they are not generic sinners, but specific ones. And trust in you alone to make it right. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus and yet need to day after day after day, I pray that you would renew that trust this morning. That those things that we have sought to hide from ourselves, from you, and from one another, that Lord, we would... Be free of those because we understand that your perfect love has driven out all fear. That you would make us a people who boldly tell the truth about ourselves because we also, along with it, tell the great truth about our God. That you are gracious, you are loving, and in Jesus, you have opened the door to reconciliation to us. So work in us, Lord, that we might walk through it again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.